0: Welcome to Chinese Revolutions, a podcast about how China came to be the way that it is today. We are looking at modern Chinese history through the lens of revolutionary movements, starting from 1839 to the present. I am Nathan Bennett, your host. I lived in China for seven years. This podcast is a love letter and a farewell letter to that country. Just the usual announcements at the beginning. Um, I'm trying to get up to 100 paid subscribers so I can start producing supplementary episodes, biographies of key people, technology, zooming in on special interest items. You can join the substack for greater uh, connection with the podcast, uh, and the, and I'll tell you more about how to support the podcast here at the end. And if you want to support for free, please rate and leave a review on all platforms and share with your friends this uh so as i have been preparing so i I have material for the next few months uh before i need to like really really have read more books to get the next bit of uh like, like the next season the next i'll i'll talk about it right now um This is all kind of coming together as I do it because um, I am dealing with this country that I lived in for seven years, not consecutive, but I've been reading about it, talking about it, living in it, and I'm trying to reckon with what it is that I was seeing and living around so I did a brainstorming planning session to focus these episodes like, okay, you know, it's so easy to talk about the opium war and imperialism is bad and and all that kind of thing. Like, I, I don't want to get lost there. I, I want to focus on the thesis that, that we're going to be following for a very long time, as long as you are coming with me. Uh, right now we're, so I, in a planning session this week, I was trying to think, okay, how am I then leading up to the Taiping Rebellion, which is really the beginning? So I've started reading God's Chinese Son by Jonathan Spence. I've already read Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom by Stephen Platt. Because the the founder of the Taiping movement really gets his start in the context surrounding the First Opium War starting in 1839. That's why I say that in the title uh, in the uh, lead-up. In this podcast, the Taiping Rebellion is something that later movements look back to for Han nationalism, the, for peasant revolt, and, and figures on either side of the conflict are going to be heroes for leading figures later. And this is also a very interesting look at how things can become Chinese. And so this episode is going to focus on trade and the trading settlement in Canton, Guangzhou. Uh, so first, let's talk about Portuguese Macau. Um, I'm pulling all this from Wikipedia right here. Fifteen fifty four, the Portuguese formally rented the uh, m- formally rented Macau from the Ming Dynasty as a base for trade with china before uh, in the early 1500s they had tried to settle it by force but the ming defeated them as an interesting side note the ming uh, captured and reverse engineered um, matchlock muskets and some kinds of cannon from the portuguese so you know when you see a chinese copy of this or that modern weapon like like almost and complete clones of Russian planes from the fifties and sixties, or the AK forty-seven, and this that the other thing. Well, it's they, you know that that's how you learn that you take the good thing from the enemy and copy it. Uh, um. In so really, what we're looking at with the establishment of Macau is the uh, traditional the. Historically appreciated foreign enclave on the Chinese coast for this part of history. In 1576, uh, the a the Roman Catholic diocese of Macau was actually set up. So, as a side note, uh, Macau was a base for early missionary work uh, reaching out toward China. Like, so the, the Catholic priests who you'd hear about who were trying to introduce European. Technology and learning to China as a way to win over the elites. Well, a lot of that would have gone through Macau. They would have found their Chinese teachers there. They would have uh, trained their converts there. Early Protestant missionaries are always going through Macau because this is the thing that, like, when the Qing were dealing with the English. Well, they in, they inherited the situation in Macau from the Ming, so that that's a that's pretty solidly set. Like this is where the foreigners interact with China. This is this is how they connect. So one thing you can actually see is Hong Kong, which came along later uh, after the British uh, forced the Chinese to concede it to to yes, to to concede it to them after the First Opium War. It's, you know, the, like the British basically said, we want one of those. And so they got one. So Hong Kong and Macau today are still special autonomous regions, uh, no special administrative regions in the People's Republic of China. Uh, be running their own laws. Um, I haven't been to Hong Kong since the beginning of the increasing... Uh, control put down by Beijing but it it is a real base for foreign companies dealing with China even now. A lot have probably left but it's still like like Western standard stock markets. It's a key interface between the Chinese economy and the rest of the world because it's all European standards uh, but it's Chinese companies, Chinese money that is flowing through there. So, then when we start talking about uh, the Canton slash Guangzhou, like that, like so, you you read those old books about China and you see the name Canton. Well, that's modern Guangzhou. So the the book that I'm drawing most of my stuff here now from is Imperial Twilight by Stephen Platt. Um, so I, I'm not going to tell you exactly where I found it. It's just just straight from Stephen Platt. Um, so here I'm going to talk about foreign trade. This is mostly through the lens of the British and the East India Company, because they're the ones who did the opium war. Um, there were other, you know, cause th- this, this is a story of, we of Chinese revolutions, not of foreign interaction with China. Okay. So the East India Company first started sending ships regularly in 1717. Uh, about half a decade before the, maybe sixty years before the American Revolution, um, where uh, British New England was very well established, so the what the British would carry out of China was tea, silk, porcelain, copper. Tea was was the really big thing. 1725, they were taking 250,000 pounds of tea from Canton every year. In 1805, this is during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, 24 million pounds a year. That's, okay, times four times 24. That's like... Like a hundredfold increase. Yipes. Okay. Yeah. So that, like that, like that. So you know, the British really have a thing for tea. In 1784, this is even more. I don't know if this is badass or just like underlining, highlighting, and putting stars next to Parliament. Parliament passing a law, passed a law requiring the East India Company. To hold a year's strategic reserve of tea at all times like that's how serious the british thing for tea was and what they would bring in is things like furs glass clocks like like so the the fine european um, manufacture of time pieces was was really quite the thing for the chinese uh, I think I read somewhere about uh, Chinese would actually try to make their own versions, uh, cotton textiles, and of course opium. We're going to deal with opium later, another episode. That's going to be its a whole, a whole separate thing. Uh, but the the big thing to understand here is when the emperor says China doesn't need foreign products, that's just the stuff he has to say so that he looks proudly chinese and he's in charge and they do what they want to do because they want to do it not because you know somebody has something better than chinese civilization it's all about uh looking like the emperor when he says that so like if you learned in high school that the chinese you know didn't need foreign products no they they did but the, you know, actually like like uh, something being Western was a market of exotic or luxurious quality. It was a prestige product. Uh, so uh, like part of why the opium from India was preferred was because it had somehow European origins. Um, the, the main issue in opening China to trade was volume. More product in and out more competitive pricing so that you don't have to just go through the local elites in Guangzhou uh more space to spread out uh, uh more than just Guangzhou I think I don't know which one I should be saying canton or guangzhou um Okay, so now let's talk about the foreign settlement here. What I want you to to focus on is how little the foreigners actually own here. So this is a quote directly from Imperial Twilight. The entire formal trade of Europe and America with China, the largest empire in existence, goes on here in a space of just 12 acres, less, some like to point out, than the footprint of one of the pyramids of Egypt. So this is a very small space. Okay, so when when I lived in Beijing, there were areas like foreign restaurants, areas where foreigners would hang out, um, things that we would do to keep our sanity and just just fight against culture shock. Well, they had even less. Like for, for us, we could go all around the city. We, we, we could go all over China, travel everywhere. Um, but we're also trying to adapt much more closely to uh, living around Chinese people. Okay, well, they were kept at just this one little corner of a, of an enormous Chinese city. So it's, it's walled off. So Chinese traders and laborers were allowed in and out, but foreigners were tightly controlled in this area. Uh, Chinese-run shops were there to supply the needs of foreigners. If you want to get an idea of how clean it was, it wasn't. It was It was awful. Like So if you've ever heard the story about uh, uh, the English parliament had to decide to do something about the filth and the River Thames, because it just got to be so bad that they just, like couldn't find enough sweet-smelling herbs to block the smell out. Okay, th- this is that same part of history where like th- there aren't sewage laws, there there aren't there. There's no water treatment plant. Just everything goes into the river, and it smells like that's where it went. Um. So there are signs in English, like so, you know, if business depends on it, you'll get it in whatever sign you have to get it in. Um, I, I actually, like, you could just, just an example of how this works. I I got the glasses I'm wearing right now from a shop in China that had an English language website. A friend recommended uh, to me this giant place in Beijing. Uh, there's like three or four floors, giant warehouse Many, many small shops selling all sorts of glasses, frames. There's a place you can get your eyes uh, uh, measured for the... I, I, how do you say that? You Anyway, they, they give you a lens prescription and they can grind it up right there in about half an hour. Um, I didn't do that. It, it just didn't work for me, so I went online found my own solution, and I went with the thing that had the the English website. Chinese merchants would take on English names like so Stephen Platt is it Stephen Platt um yeah he's, he he's he uh brings up Jolly Jack and Tom Bowline boats would come up with prostitutes uh there were bars, and there was a, you know recreation for sailors. So the, the the Chinese would come in to to serve the various needs of the foreigners living there. You know, supplying rice, supplying meat, um, supplying you know, feed for the cattle that they would get their cheese and milk and things from. Uh, Pigeon English was a uh, language that was developed. Uh, as they would go back and forth, like pigeon means something like business. It's kind of a hybrid of Cantonese and European languages. It has a mostly English vocabulary with some Hindi, some Portuguese. And if you've ever read Moby Dick, this is basically what Queequeg is speaking. Uh, a few days ago, I finally I, I realized that's what it is. That's what this is. It's not somebody trying to talk to a five year old uh, you, you know you know speaky i kill you if you the the, the different things that pete that Queequeg says or anything they say around him you know, they're speaking pigeon uh, that the uh, the multinational ship crews and Uh, The the different business transactions they would have to do like just to get food to carry on their voyages This is what they would speak Now let's talk about the factories a factor is the name of a trade representative in the East India Company a factory Is their base of operations warehouse residence, etc. It was owned by Chinese It was rented by the foreigners they would have a, they called him a comprador, a compradore, compradore, uh, uh, Portuguese term. He's the, the chief steward who takes care of hiring local staff. The Chinese staff answer to him, not to the Europeans. This is going to be important during the suppression of the opium trade. The Chinese labor will all be commanded to leave. And you'll see all these, you know, like basically, uh, you know, white European CEO types trying to cook and clean for themselves back before, you know, you have the instant pot and the Cuisinart and, and, uh, all the uh, microwave meals and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, so, but the, you know, sort of like, so on, on the bottom floors you'll have warehouse air warehouse space. You go upstairs, lux- luxurious English dining room, uh, in the English factory, different countries have their own uh have their own spaces uh actually some different traders would come in as the consul for different countries i i don't remember exactly how this works but they they would like you know so an american might be the consul for prussia and so they fly the prussian flag and they get to run some space there in Guangzhou. This may be after the Opium War that I'm remembering this from. The so like so they they would live this. Uh, it was kind of like being in a golden cage. Stephen Platt says uh, that like, like wives would have to be kept in Macau. Like so they it was only european men uh own like no women sometimes they try to sneak somebody in but they you know but then all the chinese would find out and she'd be run out of town uh so okay as we as we get in as we get up to the taiping rebellion so think about all the Chinese around the foreign settlement. They're watching, taking it all in. How you got news back then, Would somebody would talk to somebody and they'd, they, you know, so think about all the things you've ever heard from, you know, somebody who had been somewhere and shared a story. Well, that's how they would share news. As I'm reading God's Chinese son, the founder of the Taiping, he would travel to different ex- extended family all over the place and so they'd be sharing news and so ah, my uh my uh relative from guangzhou came up and told us this wild and crazy story about what happened in the opium war oh yeah wow that uh my goodness that sounds like the world is changing they're 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 watching they're taking it all in so these people who are on the edges of the of the settlement they're the ones getting the tracts from the missionaries that's going to be a big one for the taiping they'll see the foreign weapons blow up in uh blowing up ching fortifications so like, like okay yeah it's the the locals might understand that the foreign weapons are more powerful than the chinese weapons at the time but when you just have hey you just ordinary people on the street seeing the government buildings being blown up by by very modern very advanced weapons uh very carefully very carefully honed through decade after decade of naval warfare by the british against various uh european powers like like one one gun was the carronade that would like, like it was short and light but it would fire huge shells uh and and they could have it right up there on the on the top deck uh the 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 chinese hadn't been going through that that refining process of war after war after war in the same way that the europeans had and so they they see all this And that's going to give them ideas about the way that the world is going. And so, you know, the missionaries, the foreign economic stuff, you know, they're going to take, the Chinese are going to take what they want of all that and they're going to go with it where they want to go. Um, there's all sorts of interesting stuff that we could talk about with the foreign settlement in uh Canton Guangzhou the um the the treaty ports established after the opium wars it's all very interesting if you ever walk around Shanghai go to the french concession like it's all very interesting uh if you, you ever go to the bund uh right across from the Pudong new area with all the with all the giant skyscrapers uh, the the Bund, okay, it's all very beautiful. It's it's all very interesting. Uh, but that's not our focus for this podcast. So keep in mind the Hey yu people around what all the foreigners are doing. They're going to be the ones who are carrying in all the ideas that are going to be turning into the Taiping Rebellion as we get up there. So, okay, here about supporting the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash CRpodcast. You can give monthly or just one time, either way. Um, ChineseRevolutions.substack.com. I'm still working. Like, so uh, you can reach me at ChineseRevolutions at gmail.com. By the way, we're also on... Instagram, Twitter, and there's a Facebook fan page. Twitter is at ch underscore revolutions. Uh, Twitter, no, no, uh, Facebook and Instagram are at Chinese Revolutions. Uh, and Chinese Revolutions at com for email. So if you're liking the idea of supporting the podcast, reach out to me. Tell me what you'd like to see. Tell me the sorts of things that you think would be helpful for um, helping the podcast grow. Uh, That's that's also a way to support. So again, this has been Nathan Bennett. Thank you for coming along, and I will see you on the next episode.